from from the other side, from eating green side, I think what really stood out to me was uh, was the mission of Eden Green. The two founders, the inventors of the technology had brought it over from South Africa and had really uh, struggled and worked hard to uh, get it to a, a point of commercialization. And so I, I saw what the heart behind why they built this tech, which was to feed people. Um, and it wasn't, you know, initially it was, it was in South Africa where they, where they invented it literally out of their garage. Uh, and, and it was born out of a, just a story of seeing uh, a shortage of food in their own community, seeing a five-year-old boy stuff his pockets with food to take back to his three-year-old sister because it wasn't his day to eat. Mm -hmm. And then seeing just like, man, there's gotta be a, you know, we have the tools, we have our, our brains and just our inventive creator type mentality. We have to be able to solve for that. Welcome to Talk Ag to Me, the podcast dedicated to improving ag literacy. And, and in today's episode, we're going to be talking all about vertical farming. And to talk about this episode with me, I have the CEO of Eden Green Technology, Eddie Padrina. So Eddie, would you mind introducing yourself to the audience real quick? Yeah, absolutely. First, thanks for having me. Uh, yeah. My name's Eddie Padrina. I'm the CEO of Eden Green Technology. It's a vertical farming platform. Uh, that's just devoted to changing the way that we farm food and feed people at scale. Awesome. So just right off the bat, uh, what got you into uh, this vertical farming idea? You know, what, do you come from an agricultural background? Was this kind of a, a new interest that you just kind of got into? Uh, you know, what, what's your what's your history with this? So that's a it's a pretty funny story. Uh, <laughs> I have a degree in psychology from Texas A and M. So. Mm. Uh, the closest thing I had prior to this in terms of ag was my Aggie ring uh, from here in Texas. But really what, what got me interested uh, was, you know, something that was very personal to me, which was I had started a company, another company in 2010, uh, was very fortunate to uh, have built it up, bootstrapped it as a startup all the way to uh, acquisition in 2016. And then uh, had an opportunity to buy it back about 11 months later. Hmm. And uh, after I had uh, bought it back and we were running it, my business partner and I were running it uh, again, really had a chance to take a step back and think, okay, what do I want to do with the second half of my career? Uh, had a career in government, uh, foreign policy, and then at the White House, and then started this company. Uh, but really I had the, the rest of my life to look forward to. And I said, you know, what, what do I want to be doing? And three things really came to mind. I, I'll call them a, like a three point hypothesis. One is, you know, for me, what would it look like if I ran a hardware software business? Hmm. I had been there, done that and gotten the M&A t-shirt for professional services. Uh, so, you know, what would it look like to go into a different industry uh, and, and do more product and hardware and software? The second is, is what it would look what would it look like if uh, I could have an exponential impact on community and society around me, uh, specifically 
what if for every one unit of effort that I put out, I would see a 10 to 20x return uh, around me. And then the third is uh, there's, a, there's an organization called Praxis Labs up in New York City, and they talk about a redemptive organization. And so, uh, and you can look them up if you want more information, but really the, the third thing was, what would it look like if I ran, if I started, if I helped build a redemptive organization? So I kind of took all three of those things uh, and just sat on them for a while, uh, for about a year. And, and, and one, sat on them, honed them to where I could communicate like pretty distinctly and articulate them clearly like I'm doing right now. Uh, and then the third was uh, to be able to uh, socialize it among my close friends and colleagues of, you know, this is what I wanted to do. I think a lot of people don't really... Uh, aren't able to articulate uh, what they really want to do and then to be able to boldly and confidently tell friends and family, this is what I want to do. This is why I want to do it. And then just to hear back from, from their friends and counsel of like, that's a great idea. That's a bad idea. You know, th there's just this lack of um, this lack of knowing what they want and then not being afraid to put it out there and taking constructive feedback on whether that's, you know, it's the, it's the wise thing to do or, or just, you know, ways they can improve upon that idea that way forward. Fortunately, I had all of that. And uh, one of the friends that I bounced this, you know, three-part hypothesis off of, uh, he said, hey, you want to take a look at this company here? And, uh, and it was Eden Green. And they had great vision, great technology, patented technology that I can get to in a bit but it just lacked a little bit of vision and leadership and a, and a go-to-market strategy. And so that's where I came in, how I got interested in eating green, interested in hydroponics, interested in vertical farming. And from there, it was, I mean, it was the easiest hard decision uh, to make, to step away from my other company, leave that in the hands of my leadership team there and then go run this. Excellent. That's, that's, you know, like you said, that is quite the story. Um, so what uh, you, you, so you mentioned that when you met, when you went over to Eden Green that they had a great idea but they're just kind of lacking the the structure to get it out there right yeah um, so what made you see them and just say like ooh you know that's like that's where I belong you know that like I you know I want to go and give these guys the chance to get mm -hmm. their idea out there and you know like what what kind of what kind of called out to you from them. So for me personally, it checked all three of those boxes of that hypothesis that I stated before, right? Mm -hmm. uh, and so that was really important uh, because I knew what I wanted and it checked that box and I wasn't willing to compromise on what I wanted. Mm -hmm. uh, from, from the other side, from Eating Green side, I think what really stood out to me was, uh, was the mission of Eating Green. The two founders, the inventors of the technology had brought it over from South Africa and had really... Uh, struggled and worked hard to uh, get it to a, a point of commercialization. And so I, I saw what the heart behind why they built this tech, which was to feed people. Um, and it wasn't, you know, initially it was, it was in South Africa where they, where they invented it literally out of their garage. Uh, and, and it was born out of a, just a story of seeing a shortage of food in their own community, seeing a five-year-old boy stuff his pockets with food to take back to his three-year-old sister because it wasn't his day to eat. Mm -hmm. And then seeing just like, man, there's gotta be a, you know, we have the tools, 
we have our, our brains and just our inventive creator type mentality, we have to be able to solve for that so that someone doesn't have to choose it's their day to eat or not. So I loved that vision. Uh, I love that what, what they were able to create. And that's what really brought me on board uh, more so than the, you know, the promise of this huge commercialization or, uh, you know, this fantastic ag tech uh, industry that we're in. It was really that story of just wanting to solve for people's um, hunger and then, uh, you know, and then acting upon it. Mm. Yeah, that's, that's, I mean, that's a really great mission and it fully encompasses the entire ideal of, of agriculture, which is, you know, to, to feed the world at the end of the day, um, you know, no, no matter what the money says, or no matter what the technology looks like, the sole purpose of, of producing food is for people to eat it. Right. Absolutely. Absolutely. Hmm. So yeah, that's, that's really where, you know, the vision has not changed and uh, the, the, where we are now is what's we, we call what's, known as greenhouse as a service is what we're calling it hmm. but it's it's the opportunity for an investor a group of investors a fund a supplier a grower even a retailer themselves uh, to be able to own uh, these greenhouses and uh, integrate vertically integrate the supply chain so if an investor or a fund wants to invest in these greenhouses we will build it for them We'll help locate the land. We'll build it for them. We'll manage turnkey, manage it. It's greenhouse as a service, uh, and then and then we'll even help sell the offtake, the produce, uh, to to the buyers. Um, and we can do that. Uh, and you know, it's it's much like a real estate deal. I don't know if you're familiar, if your your audience is familiar with it, but it it would be like a developer, uh, a, a general contractor, and a property manager all rolled up into one. Uh, and so the investors in that property can enjoy the revenues, they can enjoy the profits, uh, and they don't have to worry about uh, managing the day-to-day -day operations of it. Mm -hmm. So that that's our model, um, and it's been a you know it's been a quite a shift since the pandemic. It's been a shift of going from uh, wanting to be like all the other players in the space, which have their own uh, labels that they sell into grocery stores, and then just taking a step back and saying, hey. What is the best, you know, Peter Thiel, who's a, who's a legendary technologist and investor, he talks about the 10X factor. Like, what are we 10X better than anyone else? And a lot of folks, when they start businesses, they're, they think they're, you know, one or two X better than their competitors, but really the businesses that make it the ones that really, really uh, explode are the ones that are 10X better than anyone else. And so our 10x factor was our technology, uh, the ability to <clears throat> combine the best of greenhouses, which uh, allows us to use what nature offers for free, like sunlight, uh, instead of using a ton of lights, uh, like most of all the indoor farming you see in the news, right? So using the best of greenhouses uh, with the uh, with the the vertical density of indoor farming. Uh, that, that you, you see in the news. So when you combine the efficiency of greenhouses with the vertical density of indoor farming, what you get is us. And it's, a, it's the greenhouse units. Uh, the greenhouses are economic units unto themselves. They're profitable. Uh, they're sustainable, both financially as well as environmentally. Uh, and they can be placed you know, uh, almost anywhere, especially closer to urban areas. Uh, which is really important for a variety of reasons. 
Yeah, definitely. Um, you know, and, and, and before we even dive into the, to the urban integration uh, topic, which is something I really want to get into, uh, you, you, so you'd mentioned that the inventors came from South Africa, but that the company is run in the United States. Um, is yes. this a, you know, do you guys only do business in the United States for now, or are you doing business with other countries as well? Uh, we're talking with, uh, with funds and with, uh, in investors, entities in a number of other countries. Um, there are a lot more hurdles, right, mm -hmm. in terms of construction, in terms of uh, just the, the regional uh, parameters, regulations, specifications. Uh, but indeed, we are talking to a number of other uh, folks in other countries because their needs, while different in some senses in the United States, at the end of the day, uh, their needs are still for produce, right? Mm -hmm. So here in the United States, uh, the supply chain uh 90% of the of uh, lettuce is grown in California for the entire United States. Mm -hmm. It's grown in California. So there's a two to 3,000 mile supply chain issue that's happening right now in terms of lettuce and other leafy greens. Mm -hmm. um, so that type of supply chain and cutting down on food miles uh, is, a, is a problem particular to the United States. Uh, in Europe, uh, the supply chain is less of an issue uh, and it's more of uh, seasonal consistency, right? Uh, and then you have Britain, which is the UK, which is a total other deal with Brexit. They're having to rely. There's there's a there's an, a food independence, uh, a food resiliency issue that they're facing, mm -hmm. uh, which you know is is a lot like some of the landlocked states like a Singapore, um, you know that have that have a, a food independence problem. Uh, and then you've got folks over in the Middle East uh, and in, and in uh, North and Central Africa where uh, it's really uh, resiliency, right? Mm -hmm. um, and especially in the Middle East, cost is not necessarily an issue, uh, and, and, uh, but land is, right? The mm -hmm. arable land, desert, water shortages, right? So each, each region has their own specific needs and uh, their specific pain points, uh, but we can meet the vast majority of them. So that's why we're talking to folks all over the world. Hmm. Excellent. All right. Well, I think that kind of covers a lot of the questions I had about the business. So I want to get into the technology, you know, vertical farming, mm -hmm. what the potential is for it. Um, I've actually talked about it a couple of times here on the podcast before. I've had some guests ask about it and I did my own research, but it was, you know, back in a time when it was still kind of, you know, just barely being talked about. It wasn't fully integrated yet. It was more of like a, hey, there's potential here, but it hasn't really been actualized. Um, what kind of technology do you guys really uh, focus on? I know you mentioned hydroponics is, you know, do you, yeah. do you, what, um, you know, what, what are some of the things that you would be implementing in those greenhouses? So our, our tech, our, our technology is patented for a special type of uh, hydroponics and it's called microclimate hydroponics. Mm -hmm. So Think about uh, if, if we were uh, sitting in our rooms, sitting in our houses, sitting in our offices, and we did not have central HVAC, we only had backpacks uh, that provided, you know, cool air in the summer, warm air in the winter. Uh, but here in, here in Texas, you know, the, the, the analogy is if your house was 85 or 90 degrees, but just the area around you, uh, you know, a foot radius all around you was 65 think about the efficiency that that would have uh, in terms of energy usage. Uh, 
that that's basically what we're doing with these plants. We're only concerned about the 12 inch radius around each plant, the microclimate around each plant, uh, whether that's uh, air temperature, humidity, uh, water temperature, water nutrition, uh, the nutrients, I should say, in the water, um, CO2 levels, right, light levels, uh, light intensity, light spectrum. We're only concerned about the 12 inches around each plant spot in the greenhouse. So, and again, that's patented. So what you end up having is this unique ability to only uh, condition and handle one fifth of the cubic volume of the greenhouse. So when you're only conditioning one fifth of the cubic volume of the greenhouse, you're only spending one fifth of the energy compared to an indoor farm, compared to a, a traditional greenhouse. You're only um, using, I mean, less than, uh, you know, less than that on water uh, and light electricity. And because we're dense, like uh, vertical, vertically dense, we only use one-tenth of the light electricity costs and then the light capital costs uh, that an indoor farm uses that you see you know on the news these days uh, every time you, you know a lot of the indoor farms are basically um, stacking fields on top of each other right i'm sure you've seen your audience has seen these huge stacks and racks of of greens and lights, you know, uh, lights in them. And every time you look at one of those individual lights, just think to yourself, the next time you look at a photo of one of those, look at those lights and just think a thousand dollars per light in the course of, you know, an acre and a half, uh, equivalent uh, of an indoor farm, uh, you're, you're looking at millions of dollars of lights wow. and 10 times the amount of light electricity that we use. Wow. Right. So, um, so the technology is wonderful, right? This microclimate technology allows for a, 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 an immense amount of control over a lot of the variables to grow plants, uh, both in terms of their nutrition, in terms of their taste profile, in terms of the size and weight of the plants. But really the value prop at the end of the day comes to, hey, we're able to do it in such an efficient manner that we're actually able to make money. And that's really the secret uh, the dirty secret around uh, indoor farming right now is no one's making a profit. Hmm. Uh, they're not remotely profitable uh, because you know their their build costs on average, if you can imagine, per square foot is five hundred dollars a square foot mm -hmm. to build one of these indoor farms, and then to operate them, you're operating them at you know. Um, with light electricity uh, and then don't forget the robotics, both the energy as well as the capital expenditure to put all those robotics in, mm. you're still selling to the customer's still demanding $2 a pound for lettuce. Mm -hmm. So you're just not making money. Right. right. Um, and so that, that's the, that's the challenge in the industry right now is, uh, is they're not making, they're selling, but they're not making money. Right. Mm. They're, they're not profitable. Uh, and then on the other hand, you got greenhouses, which are profitable, but you need five times the amount of space. Mm -hmm. One and a half acres of ours is a different is equivalent to about 10 acres of greenhouse space. Good luck trying to find 10 acres at a remotely profitable, you know, uh, a remotely uh, uh, valuable, you know, price uh, mm -hmm. close to an urban area. 
uh, that pencils into your economics. It just doesn't happen. Right. So you've got to push these greenhouses farther and farther out away from the urban centers. So that doesn't solve for this supply chain problem that we're dealing with. Right. Um, so, you know, it's it's a confluence of, of factors like the pandemic uh, and the things that the pandemic caused, like transportation costs, uh, that are really pushing our industry into the limelight, uh, and specifically us eating green into the limelight because um, we've seen just in the food industry alone, not to mention all the other industries. Like, good luck trying to get a Christmas present before Christmas if you haven't ordered it already. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, supp- transportation costs have gone up depending on the industry anywhere from two hundred to four hundred percent since since pr- before the pandemic, and they're not going to go down anytime soon. So. Uh, for for the business people out there, if you can imagine a 200 to 400% increase on any, any line item in your, uh, in your P&L will just break you. Well, when you're working with $2 a pound lettuce, uh, that'll really break you. So uh, that's what we're seeing is people are trying in every which way to solve for the supply chain cost problem and this logistics problem. Um, and, and we're one of the few that can solve it profitably. Wow. Yeah. That's quite the, it's quite the, uh, the, the business model there. Um, yeah, that's really interesting. Um, one of the big things I know has been a concern with, with vertical farming is like you said, you know, it, it may be able to produce to the level it needs to, but it won't be profitable, or maybe you can profit off of it, but it can't produce to, to supply the, the need that it, that it would need to. Um, and I know that, you know, a lot of, especially more, you know, traditional farmers, uh, you know, the average age of the American farmers, 58 years old, you know, they're, they're very hesitant with this new technology. Um, and it's not that they're opposed to technology in general, they use all kinds of new technology on their own operations. Um, right. But I, I know a lot of people who are very um, skeptical about the integration of vertical farming and say that it might be, you know, it might be fun as kind of a hobby, but it will never reach commercial levels. Um, yeah. so, so hearing the potential that it, it could reach that, that commercial level and, and not only, you know, just, just supply, you know, fix that supply chain issue, but also work almost as a supplement to, um, you know, traditional farming in a way that, you know, we've, we've been trying to figure out for a while. That's, that's exciting news to hear. Yeah. You know, we, we, at least at Eden Green, we never want to replace, uh, totally replace the traditional farmer. Mm-hmm. Um, they, they are farmers here in America are some of the hardest working individuals, uh, in in the nation, like hands down, Mm. right. Hands down. Um, and we know what we're good at. We know we're good at, at, uh, leafy greens. We know we're good at herbs. We know we're good at some berries, but we're not good at everything. Mm. Um, and, and so we want to come alongside the farmers and just say, Hey, let us, let us do what we're really good at and take those off your hands and then let you focus on more profitable crops, more environmentally sustainable crops or crop rotations, right? Um, and take some of those pressures off and then let, let's work, let's work together. Yeah. I, I think, um, you know, you talk about the age, average age of the farmers. I've got, uh, you know, all of our workers uh, at, at, our, at our greenhouse down here in, in, uh, in Dallas, Fort Worth, uh, are, you know, I would say the vast majority are under 30. Mm. Um, and it's because, and we're, we're attracting them more and more as, as the, the renown of, of our company grows, we're attracting these younger workers more and more because 
uh, a lot of them want to get into ag. They want to get into farming. They just know the traditional one is just, it's too far out, right? It's, mm-hmm. it's, they don't want to move out into the, the rural parts of the country. Uh, and then also too, uh, they just, they, they know uh, just seeing technology that there's got to be some better ways to grow. And so mm-hmm. we're really trying, we're attracting a new wave of farmers, a new wave of, of ag. I wouldn't even call it urban ag. I would just call it ag, mm-hmm. right? A new wave of ag workers and technologists and engineers um, and, and production folks that just, uh, you know, want to provide they have the same heart they have the same vision that they want to help feed people uh, but they know there's got to be a better way so we're really excited about it because uh, because of our efficiency within uh, each of our greenhouses uh, we can afford to uh, hire up to 30 full-time people per greenhouse module Mm -hmm. Uh, that's a big deal right especially if you're close closer into an urban or suburban area who are you going to hire you're going to hire your neighbors Right. So, mm-hmm. uh, there's a place for robotics, uh, and, and there's a place for AI and we're using AI in terms of growing. Um, but the robotics piece, we're happy to put robotics in there, but we, that's a lever that we can pull. Um, that's an option for us because, uh, because the greenhouses are, uh, economically profitable. Uh, whereas a lot of folks have to put the robotics in, they have to bump up that capital expenditure and robotics because their OPEX, their operating expenditures just don't make sense. Otherwise they can't hire 30 people like we can. Right. Um, so that's really exciting for us to be a, the ability to hire and train, uh, and expose this new wave of ag workers, uh, and ag industry specialists, uh, in, in, you know, into our greenhouses. Yeah, no, that's awesome. And that's a huge thing that I've been really talking about a lot on the podcast more recently. Um, so I'm just gave a little information about myself. I'm a college student right now, um, but I'm studying to be a high school ag teacher. And I have said forever that, you know, there, there are a lot of potential careers out there for people who are interested in agriculture that don't necessarily have to be on the farm. And, you know, a lot of them have been more research-based or computer science-based or engineering-based, um, you know, or law or, you know, there's, there's, a wide variety out there. But one thing I've learned from doing this podcast for a while is that there are a lot of people, like you said, that are incredibly interested in agriculture that don't come from that background. And so they almost feel discouraged to a degree to go out and experience agriculture um, in its truest form. And so having something like that, you know, closer to an urban area for them to be able to interact with, that'd be, that'd be huge, you know, for getting more involvement and for getting more interest, especially from the younger generation, because that's been, uh, kind of a difficult goal lately for agriculture is, is to try to get more of the, that younger generation interested and involved and wanting to help and, you know, getting them hands-on with, with the, uh, with the work and everything, because we have a massive population to feed and we're running out of land by the day. And we're, you know, finding more and more difficulties in producing certain foods. There's uh, you know, there's been uh, the production chain has been slowed down quite a bit, as you mentioned earlier. Um, you know, there's, an increasing stack of obstacles in terms of, of agricultural production. And we're just, you know, it's getting harder and harder with the less people we have actually working on the production. I mean, I think it's, it's less than 2% of of Americans are actively involved in food production. And like I mentioned earlier, most of those people are uh, closer, you know, closer to the age of 60, you know, so it's, it's really exciting to hear that there are industries out there that are expanding to that younger audience and getting more people interested in working with food production. Um, I know that there was a big thing that 
uh, I'm not sure if it ever got uh, completed, but it, there was a project in Chicago they're working on called the Pegasus Project. Uh, they were trying to implement a 100-acre uh, farm in the middle of Chicago, and it was supposed to be, you know, kind of a community-driven, um, you know, farm to help city kids learn about agriculture, to give them responsibility, to teach them hard work, to give them something to, to you know, sink their hands into and to really get excited about. And it was supposed to teach them not just all the hard work and stuff, but also where their food came from, because that's a, a huge, you know, there's a huge educational gap in terms of agricultural literacy. I mean, it's the entire purpose of this podcast. Um, so I think that, you know, what you're talking about right now, having more of those uh, greenhouses and vertical farming and, and more of like the, uh, you know, we talked about it being urban ag, but it's really just ag now. It's all getting integrated together. Um, having more of that readily available for people who aren't living in those rural areas, it could be huge for, for agriculture. It could be huge for the next generation. It could be even huge for the traditional farmers who are looking for help. Yeah, I totally agree. I mean, I think, you know, as the traditional farmers have kids and they leave the farms, there's, there's still the opportunity. Uh, I think the opportunity will only grow for people to be involved in ag. It's just going to look different, right? Mm -hmm. Um, and, you know, I was talking with some uh, folks here in, in the inner city, South Dallas here, and uh, they're African-American. Mm -hmm. And uh, one of the guys said, Eddie, you, you know, most of our generation is only one or two generations removed from the farm, mm -hmm. right? Especially in the South and the Southeast. Um, so there is still very much in the black culture, uh, very much large, large elements of agriculture, uh, especially in, uh, in, in food, in the, you know, what they eat, how they eat it, how they gather. Uh, it's very much agrarian based. <clears throat> and so uh, the promise is there for folks uh, in the inner city, not just to learn about where they're uh, food is coming from and not just to learn about, you know, get exposure to all of that, but really to, you know, have the opportunity to say, Hey, you know, uh, this is very much in my culture to go into this industry, to go make a profession, make a living out of this. Uh, and it's not so far-fetched as it sounds uh, that, you know, I would go be a farmer. It just happens to be in the city. Right. Right. So uh, I, I think there's a lot of promise there. There's it's it's less um, it is uh, less uh, distinctive and disparate uh, than than people make it out to be uh, because of some of the cultural ties and you know same with the with uh, a lot of the minority uh, you know communities. Uh, I'm I myself am uh, the the son of Filipino immigrants. I'm I'm only two generations one and a half, really yeah two generations from from an agrarian based uh vocation right mm. that's my my grandparents uh were they lived uh out in the farmland and so mm -hmm. I, I i think it's a very very much a a, a doable uh, it's it's not a, a huge reach to think that the next generation of professionals a lot, you know, a sizable portion of them would be uh, in the ag industry. It just will look totally different. Yeah, definitely. And, you know, that's something that is, it's kind of a difficult conversation for those people who are um, a bit more traditionalist, but, you know, ag agriculture does need to evolve, you know, in order to, to meet the needs that we're going to need to meet over the next you know few years, it's, it's going to have to change, you know, whether it be through technology or through, um, 
through practices. You know, I know that uh, in my local community, because I come from a farming town, um, there are a few farmers who are trying new methods of like, you know, regenerative agriculture or some other more um, non, non-traditional methods in the, in terms of what we, what we would usually uh, farm in that area. And it's scary for a lot of, you know, a lot of farmers. They're not really sure what to expect, but a lot of them are starting to acknowledge that if agriculture does not evolve, then it's, it's going to face some serious struggles. And I think that, you know, the vertical farming, you know, sphere is going to be a big part of that. Um, I think that a lot of the integration with, with urban areas is going to be a big part of that. I think that rural and urban areas working together is going to need to happen if, if that's going to occur. I, that's something actually, I just did a whole uh, mini series on the podcast about urban and, and rural areas uh, needing to work together as opposed to just being separated all the time. Um, you know, in terms of geographic location, sure, you know, they, they, it makes more sense for them to be separated, but there's no reason for rural communities and urban community, communities to not uh, you know, collaborate and, and to try to find ways to integrate their, their strengths together and, and to use them to, to the best of their ability. Um, but no, I think, I think you have a, a solid point as far as the community goes, as far as their, you know, the, some of those populations and their cultures, you know, almost, uh, not to say, you know, they're obligated to, but, but almost have, um, you know, some, some sort of calling to agriculture that a lot of them don't even realize until they, until they get that exposure. And then they're like, Oh, that, you know, I wish I would have known about this earlier. This is great. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Hmm. Yeah. So, and then I know that one of the big things, you know, we, we've been talking about tech a whole lot. Um, you know, I, I know that we've been talking about, you know, the hydroponics and the vertical farming and, and how all that tech is, is going to be uh, changing the, the landscape. You know, do you have any, any proposed, you know, visions about what you think agriculture is going to look like in the years to come if this technology continues to, to grow in the way that it is? Yeah, I think it's a matter of uh, when, not if. Mm. Uh, but I think um, I can see, you know, th- there being a sizable uh, just m- market for uh, indoor grown or hydroponically grown or greenhouse grown produce, uh, especially as uh, as just the weather gets more volatile, especially as, um, you know, environmental controls, uh, get more volatile. We're seeing, you know, more, um, uh, listeria and salmonella and E. coli outbreaks from traditional mm-hmm. farms. Uh, we're seeing shortages, right. Of, uh, of produce. And so I think there's, there's going to be a rise in the market just for that. Mm-hmm. Right. I, it, it may even be, you know, you have your traditional, your conventional, as I'll call it in the grocery store, conventional, organic, and uh, indoor grown. Mm-hmm. And I think there's going to be pros and cons to all of those, uh, both on a price spectrum, as well as a taste profile spectrum, as well as a, you know, just some, some intangibles. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think there'll be a market for that uh, for sure. Uh, I think, um, you know, the, the consumer, the, the trend of the consumer is even over organic, they want more locally grown. Uh, we've seen a 200% increase in the demand for locally grown green, uh, locally grown produce over organic. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think there's going to be a rise in, in uh, locally grown food um, and the demand for it. And it really is customer centric, like wherever the customer wants to be, that's where the industry has to head. So uh, there's demand for locally grown. There's a demand for cleaner, safer food. Um, I think, you know, just because when you can put these things so much closer to 
uh, the consumer, it's going to last longer in their fridge. Mm-hmm. Anecdotally, uh, I gave some greens uh, from one of our greenhouses to uh, to some neighbors, and they forgot about it for three weeks in their fridge, pulled it back out, still good to go. Huh. They said it tasted great. It was crispy, everything, right? Three wow. weeks after they put it in their fridge. I think that's going to become a surprising norm when people are able to taste this and then see how long it lasts. Mm-hmm. They're going to look in the, when they get to the grocery store, they're going to look at conventional and think, okay, uh, I think I'll eat this. I'll, I'll be able, I will pay less because I know I'm going to eat it in the next couple of days. And then they're going to be consumers, the same consumers who think about certain produce and think I'm going to pay a little, little bit more because I know I'm not going to eat this right away, but I, I'm going to need it in a week. Right. Yeah. Um, it's, it's going to get to that level of, of, uh, split second consumer thinking, mm-hmm. uh, that's going to, you know, that's going to, to move the market uh, towards where we are. Mm. Uh, and I think just the demand for consistent year round produce, not just leafy greens, but berries and everything else. Like right now, just, I mean, prime example, if I were to tell my wife that you couldn't get strawberries for four months out of the year, I think like there, there might be a full on revolt in my household, <laughs> right? Because we have come to expect year round strawberries. Mm-hmm. Now there's an affordability piece of it. Like, do I want to buy a carton for $9? Right. Um, there's that, right? But the reality is we expect it. Mm-hmm. Um, I think there's going to be that same expectation uh, all around for produce all around, but along with that expectation, the price, they're going to expect the price to come down. Um, and so that's not going to happen with today's supply chain. Right. It's not going to happen when you have to get strawberries from Mexico or Chile or blueberries from who knows where, right? It's just not going to happen. So something has to change if that consumer demand keeps up. Uh, and with population growth that is is in more population, you know, headed towards the urban centers, that's going to be an issue. Mm-hmm. So I, I think those market trends dictated by the consumer uh, are going to require some solutions uh, that, uh, that are not presently seen. Interesting. Yeah. And no, I think you definitely are, are onto something there. Um, and that's something that I I've had a lot of consumers uh, kind of concerned about lately is, is that, you know, that supply chain having to, to, uh, you know, a, a lot of consumers I've learned are, are worried about trade with other countries and and not, not for the sake of, you know, distrust of other countries, but they're saying like, well, if we produce all this food, why are we giving it away and taking it from somewhere else, you know? And, and I think that having a, a bit more of a of local access to some of those foods and having them fresher and, and having them a bit better quality, even um, that, that could be huge for not only the markets, but for uh, public perception of, you know, of food production and of agriculture overall. Um you know, in terms of, of price and in terms of, you know, all, all that stuff, you, I think you hit the nail right on the head that, that all makes a lot of sense. And I think that'll be a good, um, not that, you know, there's many people to convince, but I think that that's a good selling point for this new technology and for this, this urban integration of, of agricultural methods. Um, there was one thing that we talked about briefly before, uh, going into this episode that um, I'm not sure if we've, if we touched on in other ways, but you'd mentioned that you have these, these four ways of, you know, the vertical farming and hydroponics can save, um, our food system. You know, I, I wanted to see if, if you had, uh, any additional thoughts on, on that, or if we kind of already touched on that throughout our other points. Yeah, I think we touched on that. Um, you know, but just to, you know, 
for, for summary purposes, you know, the, the way that vertical farming will uh, positively affect, you know, uh, our, our environment and just our day-to-day -day living is one is um, it, it's going to make uh, produce uh, more uh, accessible to mm. the cotton, like to every, everyone, right. Um, higher, higher taste profile, more nutritious, uh, longer lasting. Um, it's just going to be more accessible and accessible. I mean, like absolutely physically accessible. Well, you see those not just in the high-end grocery stores, but in the bodegas and in, you know, the convenient, the C stores, uh, of the world. So there's accessibility, there's consistency, like we talked about, about year round, right. Mm. Um, uh, access to it. And then the safety one, it's huge. It is, it's, you know, for those of us with small kids, uh, just thinking about, Hey, if I'm feeding my kid, this, are they going to get sick? Like, if you've ever had a bout of food poisoning, it totally just jades you to makes you really wary of where you're getting your food from. Mm -hmm. Um, so I think there's a safety aspect that's really gonna, you know, uh, affect the, the consumer and then environmentally, like being able to use 99% less land than a tra traditional farm, 90% less water, uh, you know, a hundred percent of the free sunlight that's available to us. That that's huge, huge environmental effects without all the negative runoffs of, uh, you know, of, uh, pollution or, um, uh, insecticides or just the negative, uh, you know, negative, uh, effects of traditional farming, mm -hmm. uh, lots of uh, water waste and runoff. So, uh, that, that from an environmental perspective is a, is a huge, huge, uh, factor in why vertical farming is, is going to, uh, make its mark uh, positively on, on the environment and on culture and society, but it's gotta be profitable. Otherwise it's just a hobby, right? It's a subsidized <laughs> hobby. And I think that's the big thing that farmers in particular are so skeptical of that. And you mentioned it earlier, it's, Hey, is this real? Like, can you do this at scale? Can you feed tens of thousands of people and not be, uh, not be subsidized or not charge them an you know, an exorbitant amount of money that only the the one percent would be able to afford, and that's really the you know the billion dollar question out there that I, I think you know Eden Green is answering. Yeah, I, I would definitely have to agree with you there. I think that's and it's really great that that's you know that that's happening because that'll definitely change a lot of minds and and give a lot of hope to a lot of people, you know, traditional farmers, as well as people who are uh, beginning to see, you know, our, our, our decrease of land and our increased population and get a little uh, worried, you know, seeing other options out there and, and seeing that we're not going to just, you know, run out of food someday that we have, we have other methods of, of producing is definitely a huge deal. And that we're not only able to do that, but like you mentioned, produce it consistently, uh, you know, to get to, um, presumably an increase in, in quality, uh, to have the, that control over, uh, the environment. So you have to worry about uh, insects. You don't have to worry about uh, harmful pests. You don't have to worry about, you know, weeds, like all, all of those things are, you know, such, such great advantages that I think that there's, there's definitely a bright future for this technology, um, as it continues to develop. And as, like you mentioned, it, it becomes more and more uh, profitable. I think that, you know, the businesses and, and the, um, the agriculturalists are going to begin to see this as, uh, something that's not just, uh, you know, as we've been talking about a, a hobby or, or just a, just a concept. It's something that's becoming very real and, and very, um, 
very viable, you know, in today's uh, agricultural uh, economy. Yeah, yeah. I, mean, I think, you know, I think you're absolutely right. And, you know, I think folks like us, and it's not just us, but, you know, a lot of our colleagues in the industry, um, we know, we know that's where it's, you know, that's where it's all heading. And, and it, we, we all have the same common goal and vision. So that, that's the really fun part about it is we're just getting started as an industry. Yeah. Uh, and it's, and it's, it's fun to be fun to be at the lead. Yeah, I, I can imagine. I mean, it's, it's a really exciting time right now. I mean, I've, I've gotten to watch the, uh, the birth of several industries in agriculture. I mean, biotechnology is, is a very new industry, you know, with GMOs and all that kind of stuff. Um, hemp is very recently a new industry, um, vertical farming. Like there, there's so many new industries that are being created because of technology and because of new practices and because of, uh, changes, uh, changes in law, um, you know, seeing this, I, I've been considering this a new revolution of agriculture. I'm not sure how versed you are in agricultural history, but uh, there have been four or five, depending on who you talk to, revolutions of agriculture. And I believe that this is the fifth um, based off of my model. Um, but it's, it's, we're in a new generation of agriculture that's, that's more than just technology and it's more than just practice. It's, you know, an entire integration of culture and of, of society with, you know, with traditional agriculture. And it's a, it's a conversation, you know, really, um, because in the other revolutions, they were all based on technology. They're all based on innovation. You know, like the second revolution was all about tractors and the third revolution was all about, uh, chemicals and, you know, using pesticides and all that kind of stuff. Um, arguably the fourth revolution was the automation, um, you know, the, the production of, of, you know, self-driving tractors and that kind of technology. And I think that this is a new revolution that's all about the integration and that conversation between traditional farming and how are we going to feed all these people, you know, using those new methods, using that new technology, um, having a better understanding of what is potentially out there to produce better products for more people on less land. Um, and I think that, you know, it's, it's, a, it's an exciting time to, to get to watch all of that, you know, from the perspective of somebody who's, you know, actively involved in agriculture, as well as from a consumer perspective, who's getting to try all these products and see the results of these new industries firsthand. Yeah, for sure. Absolutely. Couldn't agree with you more. Awesome. So I think, I mean, that kind of wraps up all the thoughts I, and, and questions I had. Um, I don't know if there's anything else you want to uh, add on to that conversation, or if you, if you'd like to um, you know, let everyone know if, where they can find more information about your company and about what, you know, what you guys are doing and, and anything like that, you're more than welcome to. Yeah. I mean, if, if people want to find out more, uh, edengreen.com, like E-D-E-N, like the garden of the Eden green.com is where, uh, where you can find a lot of information on us. Uh, and then on the socials, uh, social media, uh, whether it's Instagram or LinkedIn, I think it's all at Eden green tech. Awesome. Well, yeah, I'll put, I'll put all the links down in the description so everyone can go check that stuff out. And I will be, uh, definitely, you know, posting more and more information about this stuff as, as we learn about it. This is, like I mentioned, a, a big topic that a lot of my, uh, a lot of my guests and audience have been very curious about for a while. So I'm excited that we actually got to, got to cover it in depth and really get into the, you know, the meat and bones of, of everything that's going on behind this new technology and this new industry. Um, so thanks again, Eddie, for joining me. Um, you know, it was, it was a lot of fun. I hope you, hope you had fun. And I hope I was able to answer your, uh, I hope I was able to, to address all the points you were wanting to, to cover there. Yeah, absolutely. Thanks for having me, Brendan. Yeah, definitely. 
Um, so I think that kind of wraps up this episode. So thanks all of you so much for tuning in and for, you know, checking out the, the conversation where, you know, hope, hopefully you guys go and check out Eddie and see all of his uh, stuff over his company. Um, I think it's gonna be a lot of fun to watch them grow over time and I'm excited to see where they go. Uh, but yeah, that kind of wraps things up. So, uh, hope to catch all of you next week and don't forget if you ate today, thank a farmer. <laughs>